Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Contact. It's the season. Oh, I better not sing that. We'll probably violate some rights somewhere. You can't, you can't violate DMCA unless you're actually using the recording name. Oh, perfect then. Oh, yeah, because this is just uh, my version of it, right? Right. It's, perfect. You know. Now, whether, whether you got the rights to sing that song you know, is another question that I don't know the answer to because uh, I'm not a lawyer. It's fair use. It's fair use. It was less than 30 seconds. I'm going to call that fair use. <laughs> is that what the rubric is? Yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Whatever you can get away with, I think, is actually what it is. I don't know that there's a legal fair use exact amount. Hey, most and I, I say know. it's fair. That's quorum. That's right. That's right. I was going to say, maybe we should introduce our amazing guest for the day. Quinn, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thanks, Amos. Happy to be long, here. <laughs> long time friend of the show. First time on the show. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. I was uh, super excited when Sean reached out a couple weeks ago. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, you know, I became aware of your work uh, almost two years ago now. You gave a talk about protocols. Okay, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Who is this person? Oh my gosh, Quinn is amazing. <laughs> oh, so, so we're we're really happy to have you on. And uh, you've been you've been doing some interesting stuff lately. What's yeah, you been going on? You haven't really stopped with the cool stuff since the protocol talk. <laughs> no, it's just like escalating you, the, the right. cool stuff. You just keep taking it to the next level, and we were like, man, if we don't get Quinn on here, then we're going to look like halfwits. So, so we'd hurry well, I appreciate up. it. Um, <laughs> things have things have really escalated since the protocols. I've I really only started speaking during the pandemic after Code Beam, like literally a week before the pandemic started. So from there, I kind of jumped into a couple of conference talks and just really enjoyed doing that. And uh, I guess through that, learned that I really like coding in the open. So where I have historically done a lot of side projects uh, kind of on my own and not shown them to anyone, now I post them on Twitter and just have a great time sharing that with other people. So right now, there's kind of two things going on for me. One, uh, which I think you've both probably seen on social media, is that I've been building kind of an experimental library for adding static types to Elixir. Mm -hmm. So I've been touching that every couple of weeks on weekends, and it's in a pretty good place. It's basically just a macro that uh, hooks into compilation of a blocker code and then uh, does static types by uh, sticking annotations onto the AST and then going through something called bidirectional type checking. So right now I have support for a lot of the core language other than modules. And I'm hoping to experiment with some fancier ideas, uh, see what sorts of uh, type systems I can get working in Elixir. There might be some fun things we can do for typing, uh, like message passing, uh, getting session types in there, for example, or tracking function purity, making sure that uh, different functions are not sending messages or accessing files and things like that. Uh, really, I'm just trying to get a test bed in place to experiment with a bunch of those ideas. And then the other big thing that's on my plate right now, which I think is probably a little bit close to Sean's heart, is a decentralized database that I'm building uh, built on Datalog. And I'm, I'm just kind of rambling at this point. Feel free to cut me yeah. off. But uh, I've been really into Datalog for a while now. Um, if any of you saw a talk I gave last year at Codebeam uh, called 100 Years of Erlang, there I get into a lot of uh, Erlang's history through its shared heritage with uh, another language called Prolog. And 
Prolog is a logic programming language from 1972, I believe, that uh, was actually used for the first implementation of Erlang. And uh, out of Prolog grew another declarative language called Datalog that has been kind of a niche language, mostly reserved for researchers within databases. But in the past decade, there was uh, some really exciting work done by a researcher named Peter Alvaro and his team on using Datalog as the foundations for another programming language named Bloom. Is he, with is the Peter, intent. Is Sorry, Peter, Peter's a professor at uh, is he in Santa Barbara? So I want to say Santa, Santa Barbara or Santa, Santa, Cruz. Cruz. Santa Cruz. Okay. I always get the two minutes stuff. I've lived in the Bay Area for a decade. You'd think I'd know by now. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the pleasure of introducing him at, at CodeBeam last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, he did the opening keynote on the second or third day. It was on a very cool operating system his group is building now called Twizzler. Um, that unfortunately is not yet connected with some of his earlier work with Bloom. I hope he finds a way to connect them at some point, though, because both these projects are awesome. But kind of the idea for Bloom was to use this data log language as the foundation for building distributed systems. Uh, because some of the properties that you get out of data log guarantee convergence and eventual consistency. So you're able to take advantage of these to structure applications and protocols and uh, full-on applications, honestly, that uh, end up working really well in these sorts of distributed environments. So that is, uh, those are a lot of ideas that I've been exploring through a project that I'm doing at my day job with uh, Vision. If any of you know uh, Brooklyn Zelenka, she's the CTO at Vision. So I've been doing a lot of research with her uh, and building a prototype in Elixir of kind of my own reimagining of uh, this Bloom language from 2012 or so. So I've built a data log compiler in Elixir. I've uh, done a bunch of experiments that uh, expressing different types of problems within data log. Now what I've been exploring is compiling data log to another system called differential data flow, uh, which is a very cool stream processing library that basically allows you to connect disparate data sources together and then operate over deltas of those sources. So that if you want to run really expensive computation over like long-running data sources, rather than recomputing over the entire stream each time, you keep around these deltas between different timestamps. And uh, this basically allows you to really efficiently uh, compute each iteration of the stream, stream computation that you're processing. So kind of my hope here is that I can take a lot of those ideas and apply them to this uh, decentralized database that I'm building. So that uh, we can end up with an experience sort of like the Elm time-traveling debugger, where you can move forward and backward in time across your application. And where I want to go a little bit further with this is uh, also supporting like branching and forking of that timeline. So this is something that I've always wanted when building web apps with, uh, with frameworks like Rails and Phoenix, for example. You have some database that you've been running for months or years, and you do some sort of migration against it to support a new feature. And oftentimes in your development environment, the data that you're working with is at best a snapshot of production, but usually just whatever hacky development data you've tossed in there over the past couple months until uh, since you last had to reset your database. And 
I've always wanted uh, a way to improve that. Uh, so one of the design goals of this project um, that I'm working on with Brooklyn and the rest of the team is to basically support branching your timeline with a new piece of code or a new application and then rerunning uh, rerunning all of the events that you've seen to get to some point or branching off from one point and seeing how uh, how events are processed differently from that branch of code and then being able to flip back and forth between these branches arbitrarily, kind of like having a git change log and git branches, but for your application state. Uh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. That'd be awesome for feature work too, when you have different feature work that needs different different data, but you don't want to have to rebuild your whole test data. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's really what we're hoping to get out of this sort of thing. This is a piece that I have not gotten working quite yet. I'm like actively working on this, like literally right before we hopped on this call, I was uh, working on this piece of it. But I really hope that we can get something in place for this aspect of the system. Since I think it'll be a very, very cool experience that I haven't really seen anywhere else. And I just really love toying around with new ways of thinking about code and applications. That was a, That's awesome. that was a huge dump of information. You, I'm been, happy to dive into more of that. Doing so much, I don't even know where to start. I'm like, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe how you uh, plan your day out so that you can get so much of this stuff done. Um, oh. I know well, my often, day is a mess. <laughs> it is, are you all over the place? Yes. <laughs> uh, I am basically entirely nocturnal. I don't usually start my day before like 11 during the week or like two or three on weekends. And then I basically just code or read or watch movies till like five or six a.m. Whoa. Do you go to like complete exhaustion and then just pass out and recharge or? Pretty much. Wow. <laughs> it's, I'm not saying <laughs> that it's healthier that I recommend this. Like I, my entire life I've had a horrible sleep schedule and at this point, I more or less just embrace it because I realize that I'm a lot happier when I roll with it instead of forcing myself into a shape that doesn't work there. I lived 100 miles. I used to be like that. And then I lived 100 miles from where I worked. And so I had to get up early and drive and worked on secure projects and stuff. So there was no like ability to do it remote. And after seven years of getting up at 5 a.m. now, I would say I'm still a night owl. Except for mm -hmm. the fact that my body's like, huh, -uh, you're going to wake up at 5 a.m. I don't care what time you go to sleep. <laughs> and so I, I have converted, although I do still get my energy like later in the afternoon. I can't imagine uh, needing to head to work at 5. I would <laughs> probably in that situation like go to work before bed and then come home and sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it was tough with kids, though, in school and everything, because yeah. then I would never see them. Which, you know, when you work 100 miles away, you rarely see them anyway, so. Were you in a skiff or something? Um, parts of it. Uh, okay. I was. So I did secure chat software for the Navy for a while. And, and I just, I worked at, like, I ended up loving the company so much that I was willing to continue to do that for quite a long time. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot working there. I had some great mentors. And uh, sometimes I miss working with all those people, so. They all know who they are. I'm sure if any of them are listening, um, they'll make fun of me at some point later. <laughs> so, and you're typing there, you were talking about, you said bi-directional type checking. Can mm -hmm. you 
Can you, yeah. like, I know a little bit about type checking, but not a lot. So can you f- fill me in on what, what that means, how it works? Yeah, so uh, really bidirectional type checking, and this, this is going to sound kind of obvious when I say it out loud, but it wasn't obvious to researchers for a very long time. Bidirectional type checking is basically broken up into these two different stages that work in opposite directions toward each other. There's the synthesis steps, which are responsible for determining the type of an expression and then propagating that up through the, uh, through the AST for the program. And then there's these type checking steps, which kind of go in the opposite direction. And they start at the root of the AST and they check the types of the nodes at each level and verify that they conform to the typing rules for the language that you're working with. So when you have this bidirectional type system, you basically end up traversing this tree from both directions in a sense. And where those synthesis and those checking rules meet is where you're working with concrete information about what the types are of sub-expressions and so on. And it gives you a very nice and easy to reason about uh, abstraction for thinking about these sorts of complicated typing rules for everything from you can only add two numbers together to more advanced stuff like working with dependent types where you're saying this function takes a vector of length five and returns a vector of length four, for example. So uh, the approach that I'm taking here is based on a paper from the Racket ecosystem a couple years ago called Type Systems as Macros. And what they did here was they found a way of embedding these bidirectional type systems into a DSL that they call turnstile. And then they basically do all this type checking as part of macro, macro expansion in Racket. So Racket has very powerful macro capabilities. They're fairly close to the way Elixir works. And essentially what they did in this language is they just wrap an AST inside their own macro so that they have control over the expansion of that AST at compile time. And then rather than letting the compiler compile that uh, AST itself, usually doing like a breadth-first traversal over the tree, for example, because they are now evaluated, they are now in like the context of their own macros evaluation, they can walk that tree on their own and apply these rules as needed to the different sub-expressions that you run into. So. I basically just took that approach. My first version of this was essentially a part of their paper to Elixir. It was honestly like 300 lines of code. And then about three weeks ago or so, uh, I decided I would actually explore this a little bit more. My my first version was like a three-hour prototype on a train in Spain. Uh, So I wanted to start over from scratch, do it properly this time, take advantage of the way we actually write Elixir compared to how someone would be writing Rapid or Steam. So uh, I started that about three weeks ago. And uh, it's very much the same approach as what this paper does. But uh, I have a compile module that takes a do block. And then I basically just walk the AST in that do block and rewrite it to my own AST. So... Uh, I have structs for all of the types of expressions within Elixir, cond, case, uh, different literals, and so on. And I rewrite the Elixir AST to my own AST. And then I have two macros that I can run. There's uh, compile and type check. Compile takes something of uh, 
takes one of my ASTs essentially, and then it walks across it applying these typing rules. So when it gets to a literal, if it finds like the number five, for example, um, it will annotate that literal as being an integer. And then um, all of these annotations end up propagating up the tree. And uh, it just becomes super easy to do that sort of checking uh, as I'm traversing the tree. So I so don't know if that made any sense. Yeah. So is the, the AST that you're building, it's... are you, the the ultimate compiled elixir that comes out is still using elixir's AST or okay yeah. so you, so your AST is done entirely for the type checking pass yeah okay. exactly so this uh, compile this compile macro I have does what's called type erasure so at every step when it when it computes and checks the type of uh, one of the child expressions what comes out of that is two well really three things I get an erased AST node which is the, um, the AST node for Elixir itself that corresponds to whatever that expression was in my language. I get back the type of that expression. So if I have like an if expression, for example, with two branches, maybe one branch returns an integer and the other branch returns nil, the type of that if expression would be like integer or nil. Uh, I don't actually have nil in my language, but uh, uh, same idea. And then it also returns all the bindings that are introduced by that expression. So that comes in for things like pattern matching, where when you have a case expression, for example, all of the patterns can bind any pieces of the pattern to variables. You can say that like this pattern is X, where X is a list, and uh, the head of the list is a tuple. Uh, and in doing so, you might introduce some bindings that need to be injected into the body for that case clause. So uh, all of that ends up being returned from that uh, compilation macro. But then at the end, what's actually returned to the Elixir compiler is just an erased uh, Elixir AST. So there's no impact on runtime performance uh, or anything like that. But having my own AST means that I have the ability to represent concepts that are not usually representable in Elixir, like uh, attaching type annotations onto the parameters within uh, within a lambda. There's a lot to to digest and process there. <laughs> so, like, there's a you know, there's been um, I I'm not just going to stick to Elixir. There's like been a lot of different type systems and type checking systems in different ways, uh, and they have different advantages disadvantages. What what is what are you after in in your type checking as as the advantages that you're looking for? What are the what are the goals and what are the ungoals too? If you have some ungoals, those are always interesting. Yeah. So this is probably not what people are going to want to hear, but uh, I'm being very selfish here, and my goal isn't necessarily to produce something that's going to be useful to other people. Uh, I've been interested in programming language theory and type theory and such for basically as long as I've been programming, but I didn't go to college or I didn't finish college. I did a little bit of college, but I've never worked in academia. I never did like a postdoc or anything like that. So I have had a very amateur understanding of a lot of these ideas and I've never sat down and put in the effort to actually apply them to the extent that someone would if they were doing like a PhD or a master's in this stuff. So Really, my priority here is to 
have an environment where I can explore a lot of these ideas firsthand and implement everything from scratch so that it's not just a case of me having a half understanding of an idea because I've read a bunch of books, but where I have written every single line of code that's gone into this and know all of the nuance involved in the approaches that I'm experimenting with and so on. So what this unfortunately means is that what comes out of this may not be a library that's widely applicable to other people, but what I hope is helpful or what I hope might come out of it is at least uh, demonstrating the applicability of some of these ideas to others. Uh, I know that plenty of people want type checking in Elixir, and uh, like Isaac, uh, Isaac, uh, the creator of Ziggler, for example, is a great example. Um, he has been working on a very cool library called Mavis for doing static typing, and him and I had a great conversation for like three or four hours uh, on the weekend about the differences between our approaches. And I think we both learned a lot from each other. So I I think one of the things that I would like to see is at least sharing some of this work with others to the extent that it might show off approaches they may not have encountered if they're not as embedded within the research that's going on in the space or anything like that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I, I think that really the the funny thing is, is the things that I see that drive innovation are that that uh, it's not the intentional. I'm trying to build this to solve this problem, but I'm trying to build this to think about something differently. And you just might change the world yet, Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah, I also think pe- people jump too soon to when can I use this in production? Mm, uh, which I, without thinking about is that its purpose um, or, or is there more nuance to the problem that I need to understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I really like that point. And it, it actually reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with Brooklyn about a year ago, actually. Uh, I, I would, I have spent most of my career at a startup and we were acquired two years ago and I had a really tough time after this acquisition because I went from being on a team with six people to a company with like 12,000. And I was talking with uh, Brooklyn, who I now work with, but I was not working with at the time about this. And she introduced me to this uh, idea of Wardly mapping, which has a concept in it that really resonated with me. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the name. Wardly isn't either. But there's a piece of Wardly mapping called Pioneers, Settlers, and Town Planners, where he basically breaks up organizations into like three different types of people based on based on the maturity of the ideas that they like to work with, where pioneers are people who are working uh, with the cutting edge. They like working on problems that they don't know how to solve. They like exploring these problems and ending up with like really unpolished results where like the primary intent is to either learn something for themselves or uh, or prove that something's possible. And then they pass off these ideas to settlers who uh, really like polish them up and turn them into something that's useful to other people. And then town planners are uh, like the people who really excel at large companies who are sitting there trying to eke out as much performance and uh, like resource usage out of these ideas as possible. And all of these different stages of the pipeline are are incredibly important and they feed into each other. But uh, the sorts of people who excel at different stages of that pipeline are very different. 
And I think what I am beginning to realize more and more through my life is that I'm happiest at the early stages of that pipeline, where I have a lot of free time to try out weird new ideas. And then once I start to get bored, rather than forcing myself through, just hoping someone else picks up the work. Yeah, another thing, I don't know if it's relevant to your discussion there, but uh, about Wardley mapping is is uh, recognizing the the value of doing work at different phases of maturity um, and and whether that that contributes back to the value of your organization and its core mission. And like the big thing there, I think he, he tried to bring across in those is that uh, things that are heavily commoditized. Um, so you can buy them cheaply. Um, they, uh, they are well-known and understood um, things. Um, you don't need to build those yourself. And then like, you know, there's a gray area all the way back to pioneers. Pioneers is like, well, you know, like if you have something in in the pioneers phase, part of your your business, you may not see the value of that for a while until it develops. Uh, but it could also be a strategic advantage for you because nobody else is doing it. Um, so there's this this trade off of like, can you do something cheaply and uh, at volume um, versus uh, is something like really hard and and uh, and very new? Mm hmm. So that that that's a cool way to think about your own your own interests. I, I suspect I'm probably in one of the middle two groups. Yeah, I, I had never heard of this before, but like the second I heard, I was like, oh my god! Like this explains everything about the past two years. And then when I left that company later that year, basically where I was at is probably to be happy, I need to go back to college, get a PhD, and do research. And then it was kind of by fluke that I ended up doing the sort of work that I would have wanted to do with a PhD, but without going through all that effort mm -hmm. in the first place. <laughs> uh, oh, there's a second piece of it too, uh, of what you were saying um, about like commodity versus uh, like cutting edge that I, I think is really interesting. And it has to do with like the sorts of failure uh, that are allowed at different stages of the pipeline. And I think this is something that can shape the way you approach development, like as a startup or as an enterprise or as a researcher. Um, and what I mean by this is that if you have a commodity, like if you are talking about like electricity, for example, if you have a power outage, like that's a terrible thing. Like people are going to be upset with you if the company that they're buying power from uh, stops providing power. That's like their one job. And this should be a solved problem. But if you are selling someone a cutting-edge piece of software that no one else can work with, and it crashes every so often, it's not great, but it's fine. Like They're doing something with it that they can't get anywhere else. And so that is going to shape the ways in which they view breakdown of that software or of that tool. And I think being aware of those differences can be extremely helpful in terms of prioritizing where you spend your attention whether it's in research projects or MVPs or like more polished projects. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I've been thinking a lot about my role within uh, our, our current company and, and the stuff that I'm working on. And, um, you know, even though our product is uh, three or four years old at this point, um, you know, the, the community around it is still pretty small and we're also making changes at a very rapid pace. Um, and so, so there's, there's, 
you know, we have good engagement with that small community uh, and people are pretty understanding because we're responsive. But I imagine if, if we just like broke things all the time, like we're, we're kind of in this phase of transitioning into something slightly more stable and polished. And, and, uh, and that, that, that change can be, can be difficult for everyone involved to understand that like, you know, your tone has to change. The things you work on have to change. Mm -hmm. The way you work on them have to change. Like you have to be more diligent about, I don't know, writing tests for new things or writing tests to cover regressions Mm -hmm. because you don't want that bug that you just fixed to creep back up in a few months, for instance. So, so, uh, you know, there's, it does parallel the evolution of a of a of a company and engineering organization as as well as just the the components that you build your business out of. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned uh, that you're kind of in this like transitory phase as you need to start thinking more and more about making sure things are resilient and well designed and so on. And I think there's a really interesting observation here because companies and teams often go through these transitions, but when they do they also transition the members of those companies and those teams through these different stages of the pipeline. Uh, that's what happened with me being acquired and going from a startup to an enterprise. It's what happens as like companies more organically grow. And I wonder, and like this is something where it's blowing a little bit within our company, whether there is a way to organize a business such that you can be cognizant of those sorts of changes. And so that you can design the company or the team or the products or whatever it is that you're doing in such a way that you can keep people where they are happy within the pipeline, but set things up so that you're able to allow the artifacts of their work to kind of flow through the other members of the organization. So that instead of everyone eventually kind of growing into a role that they don't enjoy or that they don't excel it, everyone can kind of stay where they are happy and uh, focus all of their attention there. Uh, you see this, I've seen this so many times here in the Bay Area with uh, friends who join a startup, the startup gets big, then they're miserable, so they quit, join another startup, and then the cycle repeats every <laughs> yes. two or three years. And that's a huge loss to those those companies. Like losing someone who has been there since the beginning is, I'm not gonna, gonna say disastrous, but it is, it is so much knowledge that is being wasted there. And I have to wonder if there's a way to keep people happy by changing the way in which we promote and move people through organizations as as software grows. Yeah, I think that a lot of times, so I, I work with all kinds of companies of different sizes. And I even, you, you can see it in the hiring too, though. So that makes it a little hard is that those early adopters are also people who typically like to go be it like the early stage startup, right? So you, at that stage, you're hiring automatic, like the people that are applying mostly select as that same crowd. And I think that that loss is there, but sometimes like the number of people in those positions need to change. Um, But unfortunately, yeah, like a lot of times you lose everybody from that original position and it would be nice to like figure out ways to keep those around because you still need that innovation, even at a big company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it, you don't want it to get stifled by losing, losing people, losing information. But what, like, what, what do you think would, would work at like a, a larger company? You've seen that change. So what, what could they do to keep that going? 
So I can tell you what we're trying at Vision, and like we're we're new to this. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, I'm on a very small research team called the Vision Reactor, and uh, right now it's basically me in Brooklyn. But I do a lot of prototyping in Elixir. My data log implementation is in Elixir. We're not actually an Elixir company. Um, we are shipping libraries and SDKs and applications that typically run in web browsers, and that's not really Elixir's strong suit. So. A lot of this research and a lot of these prototypes that I'm building in Elixir, uh, the intent is to pass those off to other engineers who are going to port some of those ideas to Rust so that we can compile those down to WebAssembly. And in that capacity, my role then changes to be one of knowledge transfer alongside the like early stage research that I'm doing. And again, I don't know if this is going to work, but I, I really like the idea of like prioritizing prioritizing the way knowledge and information and software moves through the stages rather than the people themselves. And I don't see why an approach like this wouldn't work at a larger company too. The company that acquired us was a security company and basically everyone there was at the far right end of that pipeline working on very commoditized software. But what this meant was that there wasn't necessarily a ton of novel security research happening in-house at the company that could have flowed into that software. And instead, a lot of that was uh, relying on research being done by other competitors or companies in the space or uh, academia and so on. But there would have definitely been a place for that at the organization. Yeah, I think um, there's always challenges. You know, e Even if you have a diverse group of people who have interests at different um, different levels uh, and different aspects of of, of building uh, software, then you sometimes I, I've seen it too. Just uh, the management will often struggle to understand uh, the value of folks at one or the other phase because they've only worked with particular kinds of people. So I've I've seen uh, companies where innovation would have been really important, but the uh, the few folks who were really on the cutting edge trying wild ideas were not well regarded by management and eventually left. Also, there there's some at the other end where where you you see that uh, folks that are really comfortable doing uh, mainstream uh, software development and and hooking infrastructure and and stuff together that's really well understood. Those people aren't valued either. Um, I, I'm specifically thinking of a lot of folks in the system administration operations space um, where what they work with, unless they're, you know, developers just toss stuff over the wall, what they work with is are like highly intricate, well-developed products and, and, uh, and their, their job is to make those things work in the context of the company. And, and, and then what you t often will see is the folks in the, and the settlers and the and the town planner is kind of conspiring to bring something new ish in that is built outside and then make it production worthy. But and those are the those are the folks that most engineering managers know how how to to manage well. Um, and then and then you you get you get other management conflicts like um, you know the operations manager and the you know <laughs> the product. Uh, software development manager don't get along uh, because they have conflicting goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you really hit on one of the core 
things to be careful of with mental models like this, because empathy for all stages of the pipeline and the people at all stages of a pipeline like this is incredibly important. Like I've been guilty of this earlier on in my career where I haven't necessarily realized the value of the people in the trenches doing all of that like nitty gritty work that I view as boring, but is absolutely vital for keeping a large, uh, large system running. Well, it's, it sounds like you're doing really exciting stuff. Uh, unfortunately, I think we are running out of time for this particular episode, but um, we'll definitely have you back on, Quinn. You're going to have to. You keep doing 85 <laughs> projects at a time. We can't, we can't talk through all <laughs> of them. We can't be on every week. Yeah. I would love to be back. I can't believe how quick this one. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. I am coughing like crazy over here, so I keep going on mute and trying to <laughs> cough outside. Um yeah, I, I really hope you feel better soon. Hey, I'll be, I'll be okay. Uh, no, no headaches. I'm not like horrible. Like I, I sound like I'm complaining about this cough, but really, like it's it's minimal compared to what what things could be. So I'm I'm okay. Yeah, I I just really wanted to hop on and just agree with Sean. It's easy to do whenever <laughs> he's right. So is that we would really love to have you back and and I appreciate it. I know that we tried to get together at, at Impex Mountain and failed to failed to meet up and so this was this was a good to catch up with you and and i look forward to doing it again yeah likewise always a pleasure talking to both of you and we'll be a code beam right yes perfect it's literally like a 15 minute walk from my house (laughs) oh wow yeah you may be closer than any hotel (laughs) (laughs) i've got a coach (laughs) cool thank you and i guess have a wonderful day Likewise. Bye.